Good morning, church. Well, after Jim and Ruth, we could all just go home at this point uh, because you've already been edified by the word, but the Lord has decided that you're going to hear a message from me and the Lord has decided I'm going to preach one. Uh, I also have to make sure I'm on my best behavior uh, because I have a Word of Life Bible Institute student here uh, who is probably going to weigh every word I say for heresy. Uh, And if you notice, this section is emptier than normal. Uh, That is because the Williams have left Saturday for the summer of ministry up at the Word of Life family campground. So you can be praying for them. Uh, As far as I know, they made it up there safe. They should be there now. And so they will be there till mid-August uh, serving the Lord through the Word of Life camps. Jaron himself is going up Tuesday, right? Monday. Monday. Okay, so tomorrow um, to go up there and to serve as well. But he'll be at the ranch instead of the family campground. So you can be praying for that whole family uh, as they do a whole ministry or a whole summer of ministry up at Word of Life. Now, the last Sunday I preached on a fifth Sunday, not last week, but the, the time after that. Uh, I spoke on a parable of Jesus. I spoke on Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And while I was doing that study, uh, I got familiar with Luke 15. And Luke 15 happens to be my favorite in the book of Luke. And so we're going to be in Luke 15 today. So you can be turning there now in your Bibles. And we're going to be reading another one of Jesus' parables. Does anyone remember what a parable is? Kaya, what's a parable? You're in, my, you're in my class. You should know. What's a parable? Any idea? Where's Wyatt? Is he here? Oh, no. He snuck out. Uh, let's see. Who else is in my class? No, my, my Bible class. Oh, Jarrett. I called on you last time. Jarrett, you know the answer. What's a parable? There you go. A story with a meaning. A story with a point. And all of the details serve to illustrate the point. Now, usually when I preach, uh, because I'm up here one Sunday, probably every 10 weeks or so, every 12 weeks or so, I try and preach from more unfamiliar passages uh, to, to get you familiar with passages you maybe don't hear from on a normal Sunday. Today, that is not the case. In fact, today I am probably going to preach from the best known parable of Jesus Christ in all of the Gospels. And when I spoke on Luke 16, I spoke of who the audience was. The audience has not changed in Luke 15. The audience consists of three groups. Tax collectors and sinners, that's group A. The disciples, that's group B. And the Pharisees and the scribes, that's group C. And these three groups comprise our audience for today. And as with passages that are familiar to us, I want to encourage you to read it and to listen to it as though it is your first time hearing it. Because for Jesus' audience, for these three groups, this is their first time hearing it. And to help us better understand how they would react to this parable, uh, it helps us to pretend for a little bit that this is our first time hearing this parable as well. Now, I've put it off long enough. Uh, So hopefully you're in Luke 15, and we're going to start in verse 11. And he, being Jesus, said, a man had two sons. Now, by what name do you know this parable? Right, the prodigal son. Chances are, if you have a Bible that has subheadings or paragraph headings, it has the prodigal son or the parable of the prodigal son. 
But if you look at your bulletin, that is not the title I've given. I've given the parable of the compassionate father. I prefer to call this parable the parable of the compassionate father because the parable is designed to teach Jesus' audience truth about the father, not truth about the son, although that is a part of it. In fact, the parable starts, a man had two sons. If a man has sons, what does that make him? Makes him a father. The purpose of this parable is to teach to the audience truth about who the father is. Because they have a very wrong idea of who the father is. The parable is about a man who had two sons. It is not about two sons who have a father. And what I want us to get from this parable is that salvation is a work of God through grace. Not a work of man through works. And we're going to see this grace versus works pop up throughout this parable. So a man had two sons, and here's the first, the younger son. Verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a, long, and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. So the younger of the man's two sons demands from his father his share of the inheritance. Now, you might be thinking, okay, he's going to get half of what the father has, and that's not true. Uh, the, the younger son is going to get a third of what the father has, because according to Mosaic law, the firstborn son gets a double portion. So the younger son comes to his father, and he demands his share, about a third of what the father has. Now, during this time, a father could at any point decide to divide his inheritance among his sons. He, he could do it at any point that he wanted to. Traditionally, it was done when the father was getting either due to age or to illness, unreliable in his management of his assets, that, that he could not manage them properly anymore, either because he was getting too old to manage them properly, or he was sick or injured and could not manage his own property. When he would decide to divide, his por divide the portions out to his sons, Firstborn son got the double portion, everyone else got a normal portion, and now the sons are managing those assets. However, the father, while he's alive, still profits from those assets. So the sons are now managing it, the sons are now making sure everything is taken care of, but the profit, whether that's from crops, whether that's from an account in a bank system, uh, whether that's from lands that he's renting out or whatever it may be, the father gets that profit until he dies. And then once he dies, the sons have their portion, they manage their portions, and they get the profit of their portions. And so the father could at any point decide to do this. That the younger son comes to the father and demands his inheritance from his father is very unusual. This is not how it would normally go. And we're told in verse 13 that he gathered everything together. Most likely what this means is that whatever he inherited, whether it was land, whether it was cattle, uh, whether it was some account somewhere with money, he took whatever he had and he converted it all into cash. He sold it. He sold it all. He gathered everything together. So now he has 
cash on hand. And this would have some immediate consequences. First, he's flush with cash. And we have reason to believe that the younger son is quite young. We're talking like an older teenage son who is now flush with more money than he would probably know what to do with. Uh, And for those of you who were younger sons at one point, you know that's a very dangerous place to be. Second, because he has sold his his portion to just whomever so he can have some cash, he no longer has it, which means his future family, should the Lord give him one, no longer has it. And third, his father is supposed to profit off of that while his son manages it. His father cannot profit off of this anymore. It is now all cash. So he gathers everything together. He goes to a distant land, far from the father. And there we are told he squanders it with loose living. This word squander is used in a couple of different contexts. And when it's used in a farming context, it means to scatter, like you're scattering seed. This word squander literally has the idea that the son is taking the gold and silver coins that he has... And he is just throwing it in a field. He is completely wasting it. It would be the same as if you were to go to an ATM, pull out $100 in ones, hold your hand up to the wind, and just let the wind take all the money. That that is how his financial decisions are described. He is just scattering his money, completely wasting it. And he's completely wasting it on loose living. The New Living Translation puts it as wild living. The King James Translation puts it as riotous living. This word loose means to act without restraint. And it has two primary contexts. Either morally, and that you no longer care about God or his laws, and that you are going to do whatever you want, whenever you want, because it feels good. Just completely unrestrained, sinful, debauched living. The other context is financially, which we already saw. This idea that you are just throwing your money in a field because you're just wasting it. And interestingly enough, this word for loose, even though it can be used in one or the other context, oftentimes is used in tandem. Usually when this word is describing a lifestyle, it is a lifestyle that is completely sinful, morally unrestrained, and making horrible financial decisions. You're loose with your morals. You're loose with your finances. So the younger son is completely wasting his father's wealth in unrestrained, immoral behavior. And then, as is the case for anyone who goes on these wild spending sprees, the money runs out. Verses 14 to 16. Now when he had spent everything, a severe severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Everything is spent, and then a famine hits. And now he's impoverished. This word means to be in need to a point that you need help from other people. uh, You could read it as another word for begging. And so, he finds because according to the New Living Translation, uh, he began to starve. According to the New English Translation, he began to be in need. The NASB says he's impoverished, so he needs to find a job. And he does find a job. It's working for a non-Jew, feeding pigs. Which, if you're a Jew, you don't touch pigs. Pigs are unclean. And here he is, 
tending them. And in fact, he's so low that he would have happily eaten the pods, or your translation may have carob pods, that the pigs were eating. We do have carob pods today. In fact, they are used in making ice cream uh, and in making cakes because they have a very high sugar content. And when you process them correctly, they behave a lot like chocolate. They have a chocolatey flavor when you process them correctly. How many of you have seen a cacao pod before? Or touched one? How many of you have eaten what's inside a cacao pod before? Has anyone? Okay, when I was down in Brazil on a missions trip, we had the opportunity to do that. You have chocolate all the way over here, right? Hershey's chocolate. What you have that it comes from, the cacao pod, is all the way over here. It is a completely different thing altogether. If it weren't for the processes that we have, you would never guess that this roughly football-sized fruit filled with these little fleshy bits would become Hershey's chocolate. It's the same idea here with the carapods. It's a very similar fruit that it has. And because of our modern processes, we can turn it into something that can be used for sweets because it has a very high sugar content. The younger son does not have that available to him. Carapods were used for animal fodder. That is why you grew them. You grew them to feed animals. We have records of people, their diets subsisting on them at the time, around this time of Jesus, but those were the poorest of the poor. You ate carapods if you were going to starve to death and you had no other option. If you had any other option available to you, you did not eat carapods. And here, the son, tending the pigs, making himself unclean, is wishing that he could eat them. This is the destitution that we see in the younger son from all of his loose living. The younger son is an extreme case, as is often the case in parables. Jesus takes things to an extreme to illustrate for us. To a Jewish audience, much like with Lazarus, it's really hard to end up in a worse place than the younger son. He was in a household where, supposedly, every need was going to be met. But he has disrespected his father. He's left his family. He's wasted all of his inheritance on loose, immoral living. He's now starving. He works for a non-Jew, tending pigs, which are unclean animals, which makes him unclean. And he's in such a bad place, he would happily eat the slop the pigs are eating. This is an extreme case. This low, disgusting situation, this low, disgusting portrayal of the younger son is an accurate representation of a human being in sin. However, Jesus' audience wouldn't think that it's a betrayal of them, especially not the Pharisees and the scribes. As Jesus is describing this younger son to his audience, I can tell you where all eyes are going, to which group in the audience all eyes are going to. It's the tax collectors and the sinners. And I would imagine the tax collectors and the sinners aren't looking at anybody, but they're checking out the quality of their shoes. The tax collectors and the sinners, this is a phrase that gets thrown around here and there in the Gospels. Uh, This group would comprise of tax collectors, surprise, as well as thieves, the irreligious, prostitutes, and anyone else who makes their living through sin, through sinful behavior. 
This group would be constantly condemned by the Pharisees and the scribes for their sinful lifestyles, for their sinful behavior. The Pharisees and the scribes would not interact with the tax collectors and sinners, would not eat with them, would not touch them. In fact, the only words they would have to say to them would be words of condemnation for their lifestyles. This is a group of people that everyone knows are dirty, rotten sinners. What they don't realize is that they're also dirty, rotten sinners. So while the younger son describes you in your sin before you came to salvation in Jesus Christ, and it describes the Pharisees and the scribes in their sin, to the audience, their understanding would be the younger son is the tax collectors and the sinners. In fact, that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners is brought up a few times, and it displeases the Pharisees and the scribes. Turn with me to Luke 7. We'll read one verse from there. So just flip a few pages back. We'll read Luke 7, verse 39, and then we'll jump back into Luke 15. So Luke 7, verse 39, uh, Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee dining with him. And during this time, a woman in the city who was a sinner comes to Jesus. And this is where she washes his feet with her hair and her tears. Uh, For this woman to be called a sinner most likely means that she was a prostitute. And here's verse 39. Here is the Pharisee's reaction to Jesus allowing this woman to touch him. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. If Jesus was truly a prophet, he wouldn't let this woman come within arm's reach of him because she's a sinner. If you flip back to Luke 15, just verses 1 and 2, this is what the Pharisees are saying among themselves that prompts all of these parables. Verse 1 of Luke 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. To share a meal with somebody showed friendship. It showed fellowship. And that Jesus Christ is willing to be a friend of sinners is displeasing at best to the Pharisees and the scribes. A better word would probably be disgusting uh, because the Pharisees and scribes would only ever look down on the tax collectors and the sinners. So having spoken of the younger son, the audience has one group in mind. But we have to give the younger son a little bit of credit because he comes to his senses. And this is something that we see time and time again throughout the Gospels that the tax collectors and the sinners are usually the ones that come to repentance first. Turn with me to Matthew 21, 31 to 32. Matthew 21, 31 to 32. Here Jesus is addressing the scribes and the Pharisees about the younger son, the tax collectors and the sinners. Matthew 21, verses 31 and 32. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, after seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. This is a very common occurrence throughout the Gospels that the dirty untouchables, when they are shown the love and grace of Jesus Christ, 
repent. Whereas the Pharisees and the scribes, the self-righteous, do not come to repentance. And this is something we're going to see illustrated throughout this parable. Turn back to Luke 15, and we're going to continue because the younger son has come to his senses. Verses 17 to the first part of 20. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. I'm starving, and back at home, the servants of my father have more than enough bread to eat. So the plan is very simple. Go back to dad. Go back to dad and ask to be his servant because I'm no longer worthy to be called his son. The younger son understands his sinful condition. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. However, the younger son is operating under a works-based salvation. He thinks if I go back to dad and I offer up to work for him, then I can earn my way back into the household. I can earn my way back into the father's household. I can't be his son, but I'll be his servant. And I'll work for him, and I'll earn the bread. And so, he returns to the father. The middle part of Luke fifteen twenty. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I'm going to pause here because this is the height of the drama in the parable. To the audience that Jesus is speaking to, there is an assumed reaction of the father to this disgusting son who's returning to him. It is one of anger. It is one of punishment. Please understand that the son could be, according to Mosaic law, tried by his father and killed for his sin against his father. And I don't mean this in a, the younger son represents the sinner and the father represents God and the wages of sin is death sense. I mean this in a very, very real sense, a very legal sense. The father could have his son tried, make a case against him and have him executed. Exodus 21:17 He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Leviticus 29 If there is anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. This word curses means lightly esteemed. It has the idea that you treat your parents like they are of no consequence. That you are going to treat your parents like they just do not matter at all. And I can think of very few sequences of events that show the younger son did not care about his parents at all. He comes to his father. He demands his inheritance. Once he has it, he leaves. He turns it all into cash so the father can no longer profit off of it. And he leaves. And he goes and he lives the most debauched lifestyle you can imagine against the father's wishes, with the father's money. Nothing screams, you don't matter, more than this sequence of events. Give me what's mine, I'm leaving, and I'm taking all the stuff that you're expecting with me, and I'm going to live a lifestyle that you would hate. Because you don't matter. The father has a very real case against his son here. 
And so this is the height of the drama, that the father sees the son far off. And how the father reacts is going to tell us a lot about who the father is. Verse 20. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is not the reaction anyone in the audience was expecting. You would expect anger or wrath, maybe even sorrow. And what you get instead is compassion as he sees his son far off. off. His son, by the way, when he last saw him, was in pretty good shape. Probably fit, probably clean, probably well-dressed, and had a lot of money. His son, when his son returns, is on the brink of starvation. Disgusting on the outside because he's tending pigs and nobody is helping him. Disgusting on the inside because of his lifestyle of sin and the fact that he's ritually unclean dealing with pigs. And he is beyond poor. This is the son that returns to the father. And despite his son being completely filthy on the inside and on the outside, the father runs to him and embraces him. The fact that the father runs is inappropriate in the culture. It was undignified culturally for anyone elderly to run for any reason. But the father throws off this convention, this cultural convention, and runs to his son and embraces him and kisses him. Verses 21 to 24. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf. Kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. The younger son cannot even get through his rehearsed speech before the father cuts him off. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Quickly, get the best robe, get the ring, get the sandals, get the fattened calf, kill it. We are going to celebrate. All of these actions, the clothing, the ring, the sandals, killing the fattened calf, all of these actions show complete forgiveness complete reconciliation. It shows a complete acceptance back into the family. And killing the fattened calf was reserved only for important events. But what event is more important than a son who has come back to life? This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. As Jesus puts it in the other two parables of this chapter, verses 6 and verses 9, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. The parable is about the father. The utter destitution of the son is used as a contrast to the grace and the compassion of the father. The father isn't waiting for the son with a belt or a fist or a screaming match. The father, when he sees his filthy, disgusting, sin-filled son who wasted everything, has nothing but compassion for him. And he lovingly embraces his destitute son and welcomes him home as his child. 
And the Father and all of heaven celebrate that the sinner has come to repentance. What you are seeing here is grace. What you are seeing here is undeserved favor. Because this is how salvation works between God and man. The son thought, I'll go back to dad. I'll go back to the father. And I will work my way back into his household. And what Jesus is getting at here is that there is no work to do to enter back into the father's household. It is through grace Through God being gracious towards me, a sinner, I become a member of God's household. This is an immense outpouring of grace. And if you are a Christian, this is what you have experienced in your life. Unfortunately, despite the celebration, despite the joy of the moment, not everybody is happy about grace. There is another brother. This is the older brother. And here he is introduced. Verses 25 to 27. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. The older son comes in from the field, and he hears a celebration. He hears a party. So he calls a servant. And he asked the servant, what's going on? What's, what's with all the, the singing and the dancing and the celebrating? And the servant fills him in. Your brother has returned safe and sound, and your father has killed a fattened calf. To the audience that is listening to this parable, the younger son is a tax collectors and sinners. Now, in reality, the younger son is every single sinner. But to the audience, that is who they would connect him to. The older son is the Pharisees and the scribes. And what we are going to read after the older son finds out about this is a works-based salvation's response to grace. Verses 28 to 30. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. This is the response to grace from a works-based salvation. The older son becomes angry, and he refuses to celebrate despite his father's pleading. Notice the father has to deal with both sons. So the older son lashes out in anger at his father. I've been serving you for years. I have never neglected a single command of yours. Where's my celebration? Where's my reward? Where's my gift? This son of yours, notice that language. The older son does not say my brother. The older son distances himself as far as he can from this disgusting younger brother who's wasted his life. This son of yours comes and you kill the fattened calf for him. This son of yours comes and you accept him back? In the parable, who's in sin now? And who needs grace now? And this is where we get to the point of the parable, that both sons need grace, and grace is through the father. 
The older son's reaction is the works-based response to grace. I've done everything right. I've been faithful. Where's my reward? Where's my happy family? Where's my healthy child? Where's my vacations? Where's my nice house? Where's my nice things? I've done everything right. I've never neglected the command of yours. Where's all the stuff I'm owed? That is a works-based response to grace. He's done everything wrong. I've done everything right. You've killed the fattened calf for him. You accept him back. Please be wary of that attitude. Please be wary of any thoughts of, at least I'm not as bad as that person. At least I'm not as bad as that politician. Or at least I'm not as bad as that celebrity. Or at least I'm not as bad as that family member. Because that is an early indicator that you are not operating under grace. That a works-based salvation is starting to creep back into your mind. That you somehow earned something. That you were somehow good enough. Please be very wary of the, at least I'm not that bad thoughts. Because the thought should be, praise God that when I was that bad and that I am still that bad, he loved me enough to save me. He loved me enough to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for me. That is a grace-based response. And now the father has to correct his son, his works-based son. Verses 31 and 32. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. The father corrects his older son. No celebration. You've been with me this entire time. Everything I have is yours. And that's true. Literally within the context of the parable, because the older son took the third that didn't belong to the older son and wasted it. So everything the father has is under the management of the older son. Everything that belongs to me is yours. What more could you want? And the celebration is mandatory because this brother of yours, notice that, the older son tries to separate himself from his younger brother and the father brings them back together. This brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. The younger son represents every sinner, but to the audience, he is the tax collectors and sinners. The older son is the Pharisees and the scribes. Those so self-righteous that they completely miss grace and their need of it. But in both instances, the tax collector and the sinners the Pharisees and the scribes come to the Father by one means. The Father invites them in by one means, grace. No matter how righteous you think you are, you need grace. And no matter how disgusting you think you are, you need grace. There is no working for your salvation. The younger son thought he could work for forgiveness, and the older son thought that he could work for righteousness. There is no working for your salvation. There is no earning your way into the kingdom of God or into God's family. There is only grace. There is only God's unmerited favor towards you because he is a compassionate father. 
Salvation is a work of God through grace, not a work of man through works. God the Father, surprise, is the father of this parable. But you knew that before I even read the parable. And God the Father is not waiting for you to repent and seek forgiveness so that he can crush you. God the Father is not waiting for you to repent and seek forgiveness so he can try you before the court and have you executed. Though you deserve death for your sins before a holy God, he has made a way for salvation. And it is by grace, through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you find yourself identifying a lot with the younger brother. And maybe you're terrified to go to God the Father and to seek that forgiveness and to seek that repentance with thoughts of, I'm too far gone. I've done too much evil. I've done too much sin. He cannot accept me back. And if you had to work for it, you'd be right. He would not accept you back. But you don't have to work for it. Because his son, Jesus Christ, already did everything for you. All of the punishment that you deserve for all of the sins you have ever committed, are committing, and will ever commit, Jesus Christ took on himself. He took the punishment you deserve for your sins on himself. He died on a cross, paid in full the debt that you owed God, shed his blood so you can have forgiveness of sins, died, was buried, and rose again three days later so that you can have a hope of eternal life through him. And the way you enter the Father's household is not by earning it like a hired man. It is by grace. It is by believing that Jesus Christ is the Savior God has sent to save you from your sins. It is by trusting that what Jesus Christ did on the cross in dying in your place for your sins and shedding his blood so you can be forgiven of your sins is enough. That Jesus Christ has done all the work and all you need to do is believe in him and his work as enough to save you from your sins and you will be saved. And the compassionate Father will embrace you warmly. You will be brought into his family. You will be made his child. You will be the one who was dead and is now alive. And all of heaven is ready to celebrate when you make that decision. All of heaven is ready to rejoice, to kill the fattened calf, and to have the singing and the dancing when you come to salvation in Jesus Christ, when you go from an enemy of God to a child of God. And if you're ready to make that decision or you want to make that decision, or you have doubts about that decision, or questions about that decision, please come speak to me afterwards so that I can answer those questions, address those doubts, and most importantly, hopefully, welcome you into the family of God with rejoicing and celebration. And if you are a believer, the Father is still a compassionate Father. If you are a believer who has been backsliding, who has been struggling with a certain sin and has not been having victory... The Father is not waiting for you at home with an angry fist or a belt or a screaming match. I've talked with some of you. I know that if you had behaved like the younger son did, Dad, that is exactly what you have been met with. That is not the Father that you serve. The compassionate Father is one who will take you back the moment you ask for forgiveness. Not because what you did was not that bad. Or not because you were good enough to earn the forgiveness. But because God is gracious. 
And he loves to pour that grace out in forgiveness on his children. And so if you have been feeling far from God because of sins in your life, please know you are not going to walk home to a fist in your face. You are going to walk home to a warm embrace of a loving father who is ready to forgive you. And lastly, to conclude the message, do not be the older brother. Please do not be the only brother. It is only by the grace of God that you are not worse than you are. It is not because you were smart enough to be better, or you were athletic enough to be better, or wise enough to be better, or good enough with money to be better. The only reason you are not a worse sinner is because God is gracious. It is only by God's grace that you are not worse than you are. And so when grace is extended, do not react like the, young, or the older brother. They get the forgiveness. They get welcomed into the family. They get all the nice things. I've been here for years doing this. And my family's still in shambles. I'm still not where I want to be. I've been working like crazy to earn those things. And they just get given them. That is a workspace response. Respond with rejoicing when grace is extended. Rejoice when grace is extended in salvation, in your own life, in the day-to-day as you are forgiven of your sins. And when others have reason to rejoice, you are called to rejoice with them. Not because they got something you deserve, but because God has poured his grace out on them. And where grace is poured out, there is reason to rejoice, whether it's salvation or whether it's just the day-to-day forgiveness of sins or the great things that the Lord has for us that he graciously gives to us because he loves us and because he is a compassionate father. So if you feel far from the father, as a, either as an unbeliever or a believer, he has a warm embrace for you at home. He is a compassionate father. And to be like Jesus Christ, to be like the Father, when grace is extended in your life, rejoice. And when grace is extended in someone else's life, rejoice. Rejoice with me. Enjoy the killing of the fattened calf, to use the parable. Enjoy the celebration. Rejoice with those to whom grace has been extended. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that I do not come to you based on my own merit. That I have to be concerned day in and day out that I am good enough to be called your child. I thank you that in this parable of Jesus Christ, we are taught of who the Father is. He is not an angry Father. He is not a vindictive Father. He is a compassionate and loving Father who is willing to embrace his Son. No matter how disgusting, no matter how filthy. I thank you for that grace. I thank you for that grace that you poured out in each of our lives for us believers through your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for the daily grace that we experience as we sin and seek forgiveness, as we are given good things that come only from you. And I pray for anyone who does not know your son as Savior. I pray that they would not be afraid of an angry, vindictive father, but that they would realize you are looking for them. You are waiting for them and you have a warm embrace for them. That you are willing to welcome them into the family, not because they were good enough, but because you are gracious and compassionate and loving. I pray that if any salvation decisions are made, 
That we as a church would rejoice alongside of that. We would celebrate alongside that grace being poured out. And I pray that day in and day out, you would remind us of your daily grace given to us. That our days would be filled with rejoicing at all of the glories and the goodness that we get to experience through your son, Jesus Christ. And in all the other ways that you bless us. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.